0: Hi, it's Victoria Stapleton from the Little Brown School and Library podcast. I'm super excited to share with you this episode featuring L.C. Rosen, author of Jack of Hearts and Other Parts. I do want to caution you that this is a pretty adventurous teen novel, and during the course of it, we do discuss issues and terms that may be problematic for some listeners. We do still hope that you love the book and enjoy the show.
1: I got charisma.
0: You have charisma. You have a lot of charisma. Yeah. You've got charisma to burn.
2: <laughs> burn it.
1: That's burn me. It I got charisma to burn.
0: Well, gentle listeners out there in internet land, this is the voice of Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers and the LB School Podcast. We're at a remote location. I would say it's at the at the super glamorous layer of villainy of our author but he's filled with sweetness and light Uh, oh yeah that's me he would never do anything wrong
1: no not not a thing
0: uh so we're at the home of lev rosen known as lc rosen occasionally occasionally you have other names too don't you
1: i'm published under lc rosen lev rosen and lev ac rosen
0: Because you publish in a lot of different spaces. So you've done adult books, All Men of Genius, which is super good.
1: And Depth, And Depth,
0: which is also super good, but in completely different ways.
1: Yeah, they're Um, very different books.
0: One, and on a very rainy night in Manhattan, when we think the flooding is coming, Depth is particularly apt. (laughs) Um, You did a middle grade novel with LBYR, illustrated by your brother Alice. It's called Woundabout, which is deeply, deeply charming and underappreciated. And now you have moved into the YA space with Jack of Hearts and other pods.
1: Yes, I have another middle grid,
0: too. Well, that is published, as Johnny Carson used to say, by another house.
1: (laughs) And so, yeah. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it.
0: Okay. We're not going to admit to that. Now, listeners, I want to caution you at the beginning of this podcast that um, there is someone else in the room. And she's staring at us in a very fixed manner. Um, Her eyes are very wide. Her teeth are very sharp. And we are speaking not of Alvina Ling, although she is in the room. We are speaking of Lulu, the munchkin cat, who also lives in this space. And is, in fact, the true, I mean, she's a girl, so maybe not an overlord, but an overmistress. Overlady. Overlady.
1: Yeah. You can see her on Instagram.
0: You can visit her on Instagram. So you may hear an occasional comment from Lulu as we talk about Jack of Hearts.
1: She does like to inject herself into conversation.
0: She does, and she likes to jump at you.
1: There, There is that as well, yeah. Yes.
0: Yes, she looks very sweet. But she is not.
1: Unless you look into her eyes.
0: And the devil is there. So probably she's the true owner of the lair of villainy.
1: Yeah, that would explain a lot. It
0: would explain <laughs> a, a lot. lot. So, your latest book is Jack of Hearts and Other Parts. It is a YA novel. Yep. Of manners and mores.
1: <laughs> one might say
0: that. One might. I said it. So, yes, I you guess did. One, one person did. Um, this has received starred reviews and it's received acclaim and it is hilarious, hilariously funny. But it's also a deeply thoughtful and serious work at the same time. So, pretty much like life. Sure. And, you know. As I've said to people, um, it opens and closes with a threesome, one of which is imaginary.
1: Well, the first, the imaginary is a foursome.
0: <gasps> a
1: 4G, as oh. I believe they refer to it. <laughs> a 4 Oh, yeah. my God. A 4G. One of the, the girls sees what she thinks is a 4G, but it's actually three guys in a mirror. Which should make it six, but by the angle, you know, who knows? It, it is six. Yeah.
0: I'm bad at math. Which so, is why I'm in children's book.
1: Depending on the angle, it could be four. It could so be four. Yeah. Okay. And the size of the mirror.
0: Now you're breaking my mind.
1: Really? You're not going to make a size joke there? No.
0: <laughs> not a size queen. Sorry. Uh, as you may have guessed already from our conversation, gentle listener, listeners, of um, parts and other parts is not shy jack is not shy and this book about jack is not shy about matters of sex and sexuality and about identity and constructing identity Um, october has a number of of observances uh national coming out day and uh, various other things but jack has never been in so i don't know that this book is appropriate for that
1: well, certainly not in the book has he ever been in. There's lots of sort of references to how he felt when he was in the closet. And uh, lots of sort of going back and forth as to what makes him relive the same sensations as being in the closet. Oh. And it has to do with sort of the, the, the paranoia brought on by his stalker that who tries to essentially... I don't want to say put him back entirely into the closet. It's not like the stalker tries to make him heterosexual magically. But the stalker definitely tries to control his behavior and put him into what I call sort of a glass closet, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that you can come out and within a... uh, And obviously not everywhere is that okay. But in places where it is okay, in liberal... Uh, strongholds such as a extremely liberal private school in New York City where Jack is the, this glass closet is essentially saying that you can be out but you have to behave like the sort of queer person that we straight people want you to behave as. You're allowed to be out but you have to stay within these confines otherwise you become sort of a bad queer.
0: I find this dynamic super interesting for a variety of reasons. So there's a discussion right now about African-American literature for teens and kids, and why are there so many books for the about these uh, characters that involve guns, and why are the stories always about struggle? Why are there not stories about joy? Then there is a discussion about why is it difficult to have Asian American stories about Asian Americans versus Asians in Asia? And then there is the dynamic when you're looking at queer literature that you can be only so queer as to be acceptable. Uh And the question comes up in each of these dynamics of acceptable to whom or tame for whom or easily consumable for... Whom one of the interesting aspects of own voices is the decentering of, for lack of a better term, the standard assumed reader.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I mean, the am oh I gonna get in trouble if I say this? The uh, the I'm just like you. There is this idea that to make a queer character, central character, sort of uh digestible to a straight audience that you have to strip them of their obvious queerness and obvious is such a bad word, but I mean the you know, you don't want an offensive stereotype because that'll offend people. Mm-hmm. You want someone who seems sort of uh sweet and queer, but isn't going to push too many buttons and usually that means like by talking too much about sex or by leaning into stereotypes too hard but you also don't want to necessarily shy away from the queerness and so there's this like happy compromise place of these like you know not i hate the term straight acting because like if you suck dick you're not acting straight am i allowed to say that (laughs) <laughs>
0: what well, you're gonna say it now we're gonna mark it mature for, for folks okay. i've given them the, the warning
1: good good um but that sort of like straight acting but out or like coming out story which is a very it, it's sanitized and not just sexually not just like i'm not talking about anal sex sort of stuff um but it's sanitized in that the there is this um you know Straight people, uh, queer people are just like straight people, and this queer person is just like a straight person, except for this one thing. Do you remember when Will and Grace first came out like a hundred thousand years ago?
0: Thank you for reminding me how old I am,
1: <laughs> and love you, love the, the pitch line for it, I remember this, was they'd be perfect for each other if it weren't for that one little thing. And even the, the finale of the first season since they've rebooted it now was all about sort of confirming that heterosexuality because their, their kids get together in the end. It like flashes forward or something. And so there's this idea that this this pairing of a straight woman and a gay man had to somehow also incorporate heterosexual romance for it to be sold to a straight audience. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that I like think about a lot when we're talking about the way people pitch and sell queer books. It's like, how do we pitch this to a straight audience? How are the straight people gonna get it? And it's not like straight authors sit around writing straight characters going, oh gosh, how am I gonna make sure queer readers understand this straight character? Um and so, yeah, I don't think queer writers should necessarily have to do that too. I mean, my whole life I've grown up reading straight characters. I have no problem empathizing with them. Why can't a straight person empathize with a queer person? It's ridiculous.
0: Yes, it is ridiculous. I'm interested. We've been using the word queer.
1: Uh, yeah, I like queer.
0: I'm older than you. <laughs>
1: Only by like a few months. A thousand months.
0: years. A few months. A thousand years. But I, growing up in a decade that might have been the 80s, I'm going to admit that, that was not a word we would use. Mm-hmm. In fact, we were specifically, if you had, it was a slur and if you used it, it, it would be a problem. Um, but I, uh, remembering when I was in college in a, in a decade that was probably still the 80s, Urging on the 90s, there was a movement to reclaim that word specifically about the uh, embracing the untamability or the non standardness or the non domesticated or the non. But I also don't want to say gay people are wild. It's just sort of the refusal to conform mm-hmm. to straight thinking. Like they're just like us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I never really thought about it. Queer was just sort of what I came up with, mm-hmm. um, and by I didn't personally come up with it. I grew up with it, and when I came out and everything, and this is in high school, you know, like last year. Um, uh, you do have good skin. <laughs> baby's blood. Um, I
0: know.
1: When uh, I was in high school, that was the word uh, most of the other queer folks around me used, and. It, to me it just means not heterosexual it's a giant umbrella term mm-hmm. and you know uh, I don't I don't love the term gay for myself partially because I don't love that nasal a sound but partially because um you know like if you were to put me on a Kinsey scale I wouldn't be a solid anything um but I like queer because it just represents a lot of different aspects of queerness it means we don't fit into uh, the, the, the heterosexual box um, and it incorporates a lot of different identities. I know a lot of people don't like queer and certainly if anyone tells me they prefer not to be called queer, I will not refer to them that way. Um, but when I'm speaking about the community, when I'm speaking about Jack, who definitely identifies as queer, um, then that's the word I'm going to use. Yeah.
0: So is there, I'm going to try to figure out a good way to ask this question. Because to me, reading the book as the character, but also thinking about what you're doing as a novelist with this character of constructing identity, it's such an interesting sort of challenge to the characters in the book and the challenge to the reader. Maybe I'm putting too much of my own biases into it. Who is the intended reader? this book the intended audience at the center of the book or the consciousness of the book
1: the first audience for any book that you write is always yourself that's like always what i'm thinking and so when i think about who this would be for i definitely think about like high school coming out lev (laughs) (laughs) um who definitely would have loathed jack (laughs) um he would have been very much uh uh a jeremy um he would have strongly felt that jack was you know giving everyone a bad name by conforming to any sort of stereotypical behavior and that obviously as i've grown older in this past year um has uh you know, I've realized it's complete bullshit. Um, and so on some level, I wrote that for for high school Lev so that he can like sort of understand that even if you think you're not conforming to stereotypes, it doesn't make you special. It just makes you still playing along with the straight person game, with the straight society game. And the idea deal is to completely abandon the games that straight people try to play with you and to essentially tell them to go screw themselves and be whoever you want to be and in the book I believe what Jack says to Jeremy is you be the kind of faggot you want to be and I'll be the kind of faggot I want to be
0: Ooh, I winced hearing that word
1: it's not my favorite word either but I certainly know queer men who use it and the reason Jack uses it in that in that moment is partially to annoy jeremy because he hates the word but also partially because he thinks the way jeremy is talking to him is mm-hmm. essentially like telling him like you conform to you need to conform to the straight person game you are essentially being a faggot in the like sort of negative connotation word
0: it's a discussion about respectability politics
1: exactly yeah and so using that word jack is sort of fighting back and being like i don't care about respectability politics because that is not a respectability word
0: (laughs) except jack is a teen yep and teens care about a lot of things that have to do with self-presentation Hmm. So maybe Jack doesn't care about a certain form of respectability in politics.
1: That's fair. That's fair. I mean, <laughs> he definitely, I mean, yeah, no, he loves his look. <laughs> he, he definitely curates his look very uh, consciously. So it's not like he doesn't care about what people think. It's just that he doesn't care about what straight people want him to and I think Jeremy very much does. And in fact, in the book, Jeremy, it, it talks about it, how he like essentially wants to be president one day. And so he knows that to win that, he has to conform to the straight people. He has to play the game and conform to what straight people want him to be. And, that, and whenever he, he sees Jack not conforming, he's worried that people will lump them together and see Jeremy as Jack. And that's his, essentially his biggest fear.
0: And I think there, in that dynamic, that plays out in a variety of different communities. I know that as a, having been raised as a member of a religious minority in this country, there's always that anxiety of assimilation and acceptance mm-hmm. when you see members of the community not conforming yeah, within, the, within their accepted parameters.
1: And it embarrasses you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I 100% understand that.
0: But that's also, there's an embarrassment at a personal level of thinking about your parents and how they (laughs) embarrass you because they're not part of that youth or that teen culture that you were part of.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's a good point. On some level, every teenager goes through that to an extent. But yeah, no, I think that it's interesting because as a queer person, obviously, although certainly there are plenty of, queer kids with queer parents these days, many queer people do not have queer parents. So there's this coming out in that sense and joining queer culture and sort of deciding whether or not you conform or not. It almost works in the reverse way where the parents are embarrassed of you if you don't conform enough. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there, it, it's, it's a flip I think, to a certain degree when we talk about queer teens.
0: I I find it interesting that this novel just really leans into all these sources of anxiety in a way that is still liberating, but acknowledges all the sources of anxiety.
1: What do you mean by sources of anxiety? Well,
0: there's that how does he look and he is he properly curated to his own terms is he dealing with you know his peer in jeremy and jeremy's approval and just sort of the pressure of casting that off there's dealing with the whole expectations of um, the straight women who want him to be acceptable to them or consumable Uh to them dealing with himself as a product and that's anxiety inducing, you know, whether he accepts that idea or rejects it, and how can he reject it organically? There's, I mean, there's so many sources of anxiety that teens had, and then, you know, hormones and
1: <laughs> strange hair. The hormones aren't so much a sense, uh, aren't so much anxiety for Jack. Well, yes, but (laughs) but no, you get
0: what I'm saying about that. The
1: idea of him being consumed and the idea of the way he presents himself—like it opens with this like rumor about him that he immediately is like, "Yeah, there are all these rumors about my sex life. This one is not true. About half of them aren't true." He knows on some level that he is being consumed, and he feels that all the time. Um but w- the reason I, I wanted to explore that isn't just because I think that we need to talk more about the, the battle of the or the, the, the effort to stay out, so to speak, uh, once you've come out. But uh, also, I wanted to talk about um, the <laughs> the way that when you are constantly aware, of the way people are looking at you and that's something i think most seniors can relate Mm -hmm. to that is in many ways similar to being closeted
0: that is so interesting keep going i'm gonna go sit with my thoughts
1: now um and so there are these he has these constant things when when he's trying to think about when trying to figure out who his stalker pinky um pinky is Um, there are these moments where he's always thinking about, like, someone watching him, could be anyone, have to make sure that, that he conforms to what Pinky wants him to be. Otherwise, Pinky will terrorize him in some new way or his friends or his parents. That idea is so similar to me to what it's like to be in the closet where you have to watch what you're doing. You have to conform. Will they figure it out? Uh, And then what happens when they figure it out? Did I just move my wrist in a way that's too gay? And that the idea that once you come out, like that's all solved is ridiculous because straight people continue to impose this idea of too gay on you, even liberal ones, once you're out of the closet. And that's, again, getting back to sort of this glass closet idea. Mm -hmm. And so the anxiety of being constantly watched of being constantly judged and and consumed as a teenager, queer or otherwise is extremely similar to the anxiety of being in the closet. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: I appreciate that. (laughs) I do. Yet we are looking at a book that is a consumable.
1: That's true. It's true. Go buy it.
0: (laughs) And read it. So is there any sort of anxiety by you as a writer about the limits or having, I don't know how I want to ask this, but in a way having the novel put in a glass closet? Was there a sense of limitations that you as a writer put on yourself? Or I mean, I'm probably not asking this correctly.
1: No, but this is a good moment for Alvina to talk a little because... So the way the way this book came about...
0: <laughs> oh, I haven't heard this.
1: ...is um, I really... I felt like there are a lot of... There's more queer YA out on the market, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I felt like a lot of it is very sweet romance, which is good. Queer teens need to be able to see themselves falling in love. Or queerness, eh, the queer characters are... Uh, their queerness is incidental, by which I mean... If you were to say that the character was straight and then just switch the sex of a love interest, um, very little would change. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to write a book that was not a sweet romance, that was not incidental queerness, but that was about queerness. And it wasn't about falling in love. Um, Just because... I have a I have a slight problem with YA romance. Um, not all the time, but sometimes just the idea. It's the same problem that, like, a lot of people have with Disney movies. The idea that, like, oh, yes, in high school you can find your one true love. And I know most YA romance ends with a sort of happy for now or ends unhappily. Um, but... Uh, You know, just that idea—that sort of sweetness—I didn't want to give into that because not all teenagers are looking for love. Some teenagers are like, "Yeah, I'm queer and I'm out to get laid." They need a book too. Um, So, anyway, so I wrote 99 pages of it, sort of in a fury, over the course of about a week, (laughs) and then I put it down and I was like, "This is the worst idea I've ever had." And I let it sit for a little while, and then I went back and I read it, and I hadn't even shown it to my agent yet. But Alvina is a friend. Um, she, she published my first book. She's the editor of my first book. And so I reached out to her, and I was like, I wrote something that's 99 pages, and I have a rule where if I write 100 pages, I have to finish it. Um, will you tell me if this is truly the worst idea I've ever come up with? And, you know, outside of a professional context, just just give me a little... Hint, and um, she she very generous generously said she would, and
0: and then you read it, Alvina, and then what did you say?
2: Well, I don't know if I ever... Re- oh, hello, this is <laughs> Alvina Ling. No. <laughs> What did I say, love?
1: Well, halfway through, you were like, oh, yeah, this is good. I can think of some editors for it. And then at the end of it, you were like, just submit it to me. (laughs)
0: Only
2: I do remember that, yes. Now (laughs) I remember. I did. As I was reading it, I thought, this is really fun. This is, uh, I probably did think this is very queer. (laughs) Maybe it should have a queer editor. And I know the perfect editor for it. But then when I finished it, I I, I just thought, I want to edit this book. Because I think this book is great and it deserves to be published, and I want us to publish it. So, we but did. it's still queer. It is still queer, and I am not. <laughs> I learned a lot. Reading it's okay. This we book. like you anyway. <laughs> yes, we do. I googled things. <laughs> during the editing of this book.
1: See, and that see, you know, that's that's how straight people should read it, in my opinion. Like, right. if there's, like, a straight person who starts reading this and goes, oh, I have no idea what that means. I feel so left out of this story. Like, you know, I can't continue because it's not for me. That just, that's such an eye roll to me. Just because I have been, I have read, you know, straight stories my whole life. I know, right.
0: I don't well, get that idea. Except... There is a discussion about decentering whiteness or straightness, mm-hmm. and maybe accepting that some things are, you know, the limitations of how you can connect with the story.
1: A person's a person. Okay. <laughs> like I, I know that there are some things that I am not understanding the same way that the the audi- the centered audience. Let's put it that way. Is understanding them okay. um, like uh, HBO's "Random Acts of Flyness," which oh, is love that show. oh my god, I love it. And one of the the producers uh, on it is um, a, a friend. I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. She's a student, but I like her. She's cool. Um, and uh, she was talking to me about it, and she says that they have a rule in the writers' room about never centering whoever the oppressor is in whatever they're writing and I think that that's exactly how you should be writing and when I when I watch that show I love that show I know that I am not understanding every tiny nuance of it Mm -hmm. but that doesn't prevent me from feeling for the characters on that show for feeling for the situations and for essentially having empathy and if the fact that your perspective isn't centered in a story is keeping you from having empathy, that that's like a level of closed-mindedness that I can't even conceive of, you know? But I think that that's a level of closed-mindedness a lot of people have been taught
2: to have. Well, uh, I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning where you jokingly said, they're just like us.
1: <laughs> yeah. So,
2: I mean, I, I think it's true, and I think, you know, growing up Asian-American... You know, watching a show like Fresh Off the Boat or the movie Crazy Rich Asians, um, there's a certain, you know, appreciation that I have of those shows and movies that I think a white person would not, but they can still enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, It's
1: not, it's like, you know... Am I, if I watch that, am I going to understand it with the same level of, like, this is speaking to my soulness as you? No. But that doesn't prevent me from enjoying it or even, like, genuinely feeling it. And watching it brings me closer, and then being able to, like, discuss it with you, um, brings me closer to understanding your experience. Because you can sort of learn by talking to the people after watching or consuming this art. Um what speaks to them about it and this goes for like anyone even people from the same group you know Mm -hmm. oh this spoke to me this spoke to me um and that's how you learn more about other people um you know there's that that study about how reading like vastly increases your empathy and it's because Mm -hmm. you're constantly be thrown being thrown into stories from different perspectives and even if the perspectives still center your perspective it's not exactly you. So the further away you get from your centered view, I think the more empathy you gain.
0: I love that answer. And it makes me think about the work that I do in reading books or listening to music or watching different pieces of art. How How much am I, as a viewer or a recipient of the art, how much work am I willing to do to meet the creator in a space, and make something new of that experience, mm-hmm. and we're in asking people to step outside themselves a bit and to accept decentering their point of view. We're asking them to do a little bit more work, and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing.
1: To Google some terms.
0: <laughs> to Google some terms and learn new skills. <laughs> <laughs> and. I think maybe now we should go have a lovely low-carb vegetarian dinner (laughs) (laughs) and really talk dirty. And on that note, this has been Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers with the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. With me has been Lev Rosen, known as L.C. Rosen, author of Jack of Hearts and Other Parts, a book for which you should make space on your table and your bookshelf and your heart right now. And we tolerated the presence of Albina Lake. We'll see you next time.